0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jade Scott. This is Growth RX, and we are back for another year in 2022. Let me just check that we are in Facebook now. Yes, today I am joined with the amazing Nathan Butler, who is amazing for a lot of reasons. Um, mostly my interactions with him over the last six months have been associated with the Allied Health Awards for which he was uh accredited with and announced as exercise physiologist of the year in 2021 so congratulations that's a good uh introduction to start with
1: yeah pretty happy with that um you're too kind Um, and very honored and grateful to be here today as well
0: Uh, and look that night was an incredible night where we showcased a lot of amazing achievements from people across 26 categories in allied health and as we just mentioned you did take out your award what what did that mean to you i mean Obviously, there's that we we recognise and reward people across lot for lots of different reasons in our industry. But um, for you in particular, being announced on the night up against so many, uh, you know, well deserving uh, finalists in your category, what did what did it feel like to be announced?
1: It's a pretty incredible feeling because I was talking with all the others, and it was a great night to be able to talk with the others on the table, um, virtually, and and to have those discussions and realizing what they're doing. I honestly thought, well, it's been great to be nominated. Um, so winning uh, it was yeah, such a surprise, but very honouring. And I think for us, it's really important for to bring the light to the conditions that we treat um, and to increase the awareness around invisible illnesses. And That's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today. And it's opened up a lot of opportunities to have those discussions. So it's very honoured and grateful for it
0: yeah well congratulations again it's it's been really great connecting with you and a lot of people across industries but exercise physiology we've only had a couple of guests so far on on the show and it's it's one of those things that is becoming you know far more sought after you know, tied into to care plans cdm and there's a lot of uh, things that questions that I have for you throughout today, um, but obviously, and I hope that I introduce you correctly, um, Active Health Clinic is where you'll come from, which is you've got a, a few clinics up there, haven't you?
1: Yeah, so we're located in Melbourne, but we also have Bendigo and Mornington, but we actually see people worldwide um, through telehealth. So we believe that we can help people in all places through education.
0: Yeah, wow. And how, how is that? I mean, obviously, that's through telehealth and that shift which we all love this word, pivot, is, is one of the things that obviously COVID prompted for you, or was that something that you were doing anyway? Uh,
1: it's something that we were doing. So we're probably looking at about 10 to 15% of our clinical load was via or Skype or Zoom. And then with COVID, it's actually made it much more acceptable. So we're now looking at, even though people can come back into the clinic, about 75% of people actually prefer to do Zoom. Um, with us because they often have limited energies or pain, and so being in your own private waiting room, you can put your feet up, you can get a cup of tea, you can choose to wear pants as far as I'm concerned because you know you can easily see the, the top up. So I think it actually suits them really well.
0: Yeah, and it, I mean, look, you know, often in Zoom we we come from the comfort of our own home. I'm sure some of you can see that my. Background has changed here. My house flooded a couple of weeks ago. So being able to interchange and, and move around conveniently or unconveniently that comes from my lifestyle at the moment is it is. It's just really it puts people in their comfort zone as well, which is really good and also extends those resources far beyond where you would have been able to normally reach. So um, accredited exercise physiologist versus exercise physiologist. Can you give us the really broken down version between the two?
1: I can. Um, So it's like saying nutritionist and dietitian, um, for an example. Uh, So look, uh, exercise physiologist is just a term that can be pretty much used by anyone, whereas an accredited exercise physiologist needs to finish their undergraduate and then a postgraduate study. So um, these days it's a master's level and then have the clinical hours and training across four areas. So being um, healthy populations, cardio, orthopedic uh, and respiratory, and then you can actually practice and it means that you can also practice with a Medicare provider number which is you know, a great thing to help people get involved in your services.
0: Yeah and now obviously you you are accredited what, what what position have you set yourself in I guess within the industry today we're talking about long COVID which is very front of mind and it's something that a lot of us are not familiar with at all so you know I'm I'm excited along with many other people this has gained a lot of traction because it is very very new to us and we need to be moving with the times and innovative but also empathetic and caring to the needs of conditions that we're not usually uh, often seeing in private practice but what what's your scope usually there at, at active health
1: yeah, so at Active Health Clinic, we specialize in invisible illnesses, so mostly diagnosed of exclusion, so uh, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, we see a lot of patients, as well as pain sensitization, orthostatic intolerance in POTS, and central sleep disorders, and it's a little bit like the Olympic rings, they all overlap, and you might get one with a lot, and you might get one by itself, but we're finding that long COVID is pretty much all of these conditions with uh, an extra dash of respiratory so it's taking the lessons that we've had over the last 20 years and applying these um, to the people that we're seeing now because the numbers are extraordinary uh, and we'll go through more of that today.
0: Yeah, well, I've, I won't cut in. I mean, obviously, you've, got, you've put together an amazing presentation webinar for us and we're really grateful for your time. I'm going to scramble away with a whole lot of questions as I normally do. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people watching this space because, and I guess I don't want to get you to pre-answer some of the information that you're going to come to but is this this is just the beginning for us
1: yeah it definitely is look I think that with the Omicron wave now it hasn't been too long like we're months after we're going to see the fallout from this in the the, for the years to come Um, there'll be some people that will never return to their previous lives and we're probably looking at about one to two percent of people that actually have COVID that will in that manner so the numbers of long-term disability are huge and we know that the sooner that we get onto these people and help them, then the better the outcome. So we as health professionals have a big responsibility not to screw it up um, and to get the appropriate care for them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's important importance of why I wanted somebody like yourself in this space to join me today. Is identifying these patients when often they can't identify themselves and and the ongoing symptoms. So you know, leaning on somebody who is going to listen in this space and obviously give them some guidance, management, and support is really, really important. So I will hand over to you now to present your slides, and I'll uh, catch you with some questions on the other side.
1: All right, fantastic. Thank you, Jade. Thank you. Um, So I'll just share my screen, and hopefully that's coming through loud and clear. Yes. Clear, not loud. Um, So uh, today is really a really brief overview. Um, I can talk about this for days. And I think Jade asked me a long time ago, you know, what can you talk about for a long time? Well, anything to do with invisible illnesses. Uh, It's something that I have great passion in educating people and then obviously transforming people's lives. And you truly make a difference with this population. You can get someone that is bedbound to actually get back to work and they're internally grateful. And we have amazing links across lots of different areas. So that's a little bit of me. So Active Health Clinic is the primary business and the COVID recovery initiatives is our focus upon uh, long COVID. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. So I think, first of all, we need to sort of look at going well, we talk about death and obviously that's for a very good reason but we need to talk about what's going to happen after COVID uh, because the coronavirus will be around for probably quite a while but it'll slowly peter out but we're still going to be left with the consequences of that so it's a little bit like the floods at the moment you know we're concentrating looking at you know making sure people don't drown and survive but what about the cleanup you know what are we going to do to help work through this but I think also prevent um, or to learn our lessons from the past, which is what I mentioned before, our dealings with invisible illness is helping us do. So I'm gonna move really quickly today. I love questions and I'm always happy to answer questions later. So my details will be at the end, um, but long COVID, long haul, post COVID fatigue or PASC is the general terms and it will change, um, but we can see that there's a huge amount of different symptoms. And this is just a hundred people asked, Um, what symptoms they had after having COVID. And you can see that there's pretty much something of everything. So first of all, looking at how many people are going to end up with long COVID or long haulers. Now, this means that they don't have the active active virus. And depending on definitions, we're looking anything from between four and 12 or four to 12 weeks beyond uh, and having residual symptoms. So we know that those people that are admitted to hospital, around at least 74 to even 86%, depending on the study that you look at, will have ongoing symptoms. And what is probably most important on this slide is to actually see that 12% had normal x-ray and 10% had a normal spirometry. Now, that's only 22% of that 74%. So there's still at least 50% or more people that are unwell, and there's not necessarily an explanation for this and this is what we often see with invisible illnesses now what about mild COVID so we often hear about the severe cases but I think these numbers are actually quite scary so these are actually out of frontline health workers so a nursing population in Scandinavia and they looked at seronegative and sero positive so people that have not had it and people that have had COVID and they looked at ongoing symptoms and you can see here that I think maybe due to the just lifestyle or life or that might be the normal numbers or even the chronic stress that is put on the frontline workers that we're seeing still people report symptoms but it's vastly higher within the post-COVID population and most commonly fatigue and respiratory sort of shortness of breath are the biggest ongoing symptoms. Now of these sero-positive patients yeah eight percent um, at eight, this is at the eight-month time point. Report that they can't actually work to the level that they were. Fifteen percent can't socialise, um, and two percent are not coping with their home life or activities of daily living. Now, just think about that for a moment. This is really significant. If we look at eight percent of people, you know, that are not are going to have ongoing symptoms and be limited in their capacity for work. So today in Australia, looked up before that there are about thirty thousand cases today. So just in this one day, if we go on that 8% number, we're looking at 2,400 people that will not be able to work in the same capacity. So just those numbers are huge. And you'll know people that have had COVID. Yeah, a lot of people will recover. A lot of people will be fine. But those significant numbers and long-term disability that can come from this, um, I just really want to emphasise that point. So it's not about if you'll see these clientele within your clinics. It's literally a matter of when. So looking at the types that we're seeing, um, I like this, then all the different phenotypes, you know, everyone's going to present in a slightly different way, um, but we need to listen to them and manage them. So we're generally looking at a, a few different subgroups. As I mentioned before, fatigue is the first one. Now, fatigue is something um, that we'll go into into more details, but differs from tiredness. We also look at respiratory, um, orthostatic intolerance and POTS, which is actually a blood pressure regulation disorder. So it leads to a lot of postural symptoms like dizziness, nausea, um, sensitive to heat, alcohol, standing, um, and even syncope or fainting. It's a common part. We also see some cardiac problems uh, as well. So there can be some damage to the heart, uh, AMIs, but they're a lot minor and tend to move towards cardiac rehab. Mental health. um, So sometimes it can exacerbate it. But when something has the potential to kill you, you know, you kind of get a bit nervous. I think it's a pretty normal thing to have. So even having COVID itself can be quite a stressful thing. We're seeing some neurological conditions, um, as well as deconditioning if people have been laid up for long periods of time, and even PICS, which is post-intensive care syndrome, um, which is also well documented. So, first of all, it's really important that when people present to us and say, "I've had COVID," so you know that's that you've got post-COVID. Um, we need to look at other conditions, and we often see some. Cognitive dysfunctions and in older people, they're actually seeing an increase incidence of dementia. Now, this may be related to COVID. We don't know, but it's probably more likely that, you know, people just haven't had healthcare for a period of time, are saying my memory's not quite it used to be, what what it it's not what it used to be. And then they're going out and getting help and they're actually being diagnosed with dementia, which we know that we can help slow the progress of that through other measures. Now, fatigue can be caused by lots of different things. And as I said, I'm not going to go through the finer details of these as well as respiratory, cardiac and gut symptoms, as well as mental health. Um, And we should also think about in our sporting populations that we see. So I'm working with um, some of the AFLW footy clubs and sort of looking at the component of post-concussion syndromes as well, because they look quite similar. So trying to differentiate those um, over that time, uh, I think is really important. So as again, today's really quick and I'm going through and I'm happy to ask and answer questions at a later time. But post-COVID assessment needs to focus on all those different conditions and, and pulling it apart, as well as that sort of biopsychosocial. So looking at the biological components and recovery post-COVID and any underlying conditions, um, the social expectations and getting back to work or living life and my friends recovered and the psychological components. You nearly died. You may have died um and sort of have mortality as well as um, being able to put food on the table um, and the standard stresses that we have so looking through these things and a muscular assessment where indicated and this is just looking for the standard flags that you might see so someone presents with bilateral pain then it's probably more pain sensitization or maybe related illness but if it's more to say one knee or left knee then that's probably more a muscular assessment but realistically you're ruling out other conditions So this is a a little bit of a, a screenshot of one of our training forms, and this is one of nine pages that we give to our patients, and it is very thorough looking at all the different factors, but we're basically building a case to talk to the person and saying this is what is going on. Now this is a 20 year old and obviously de-identified, but when we look at the yellow symptoms, now I don't give the color-coded ones to the patients very often, but in this case um, I was teaching them as we went along as well, that the yellow symptoms are more around fatigue syndromes. And you can see that some things are both. The green is more pain sensitization. The blue can be symptoms of orthostatic intolerance or POTS. The gray is more respiratory and the pink or purple is more around a chronic stress on the body and what that can be, what that can mean. And this is things that we can see, not just with invisible illnesses, but in things such as heart failure. Um, We'll see unrefreshing sleep, Um, but loss of taste and smell is more specific towards this virus, even though it can happen with other viruses as well. So looking at these assessment forms, we're never going to get a perfect one where you've got all fatigue or all POTS. And we often have a crossover. So around 40% of people are going to have fatigue and we'll talk more in detail what that is in a moment. Um, But they're going to have multiple things. So with this particular individual, you can see a lot of the yellow ones um, up here. Well, we can see I ticked. Sorry, I just went back one slide. Um, And then... You can see over here, there's some either gut or postural symptoms um, that we're seeing. And because we're seeing the dizziness, which is a strong postural one, we would be investigating and chatting to them about their diet, IBS, um, looking at blood pressure tests as well as fatigue. But they're not so much, they've got a persistent cough, but not shortness of breath. It's not so much respiratory and not really pain in these. The aching is more in the lower limbs, which is related to blood pressure. So we can see from here, we're starting to pull a picture together. but gives you an idea that you're looking for different symptoms uh, as we go along. But I could spend two hours talking on that alone. So looking at the four Ps. So four Ps um, is, first of all, the predisposing. So if we look at this, we look at genetic allostatic load and there's other conditions that can predispose like MCAS, which is a mast cell activation syndrome. We can see Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility definitely predisposed towards fatigue and orthostatic intolerance and POTS, Um, but there's also other underlying health conditions. But pretty much anything that is a chronic and persistent stress on the body, um, and it could even go something like uh, young parents that need to get up in the middle of the night um, and uh, a lack of sleep. If that's prolonged and chronic with COVID, then that could be a predisposing factor. Now, precipitating or triggering this one is a pretty easy one, it's COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. The perpetuating we need to look for is that allostatic load, and, and that's basically life's stresses, you know, what is going on. Um, do they need to get their kids to school do they need to work are they living alone Um, do they have to care for a parent Um, boom and bust refers to where people do too much activity and pay for it later and this is a hallmark of a fatigue syndrome so often people will not necessarily feel worse at that point they'll feel worse up to 48 hours later so often describe this a little bit like you know pinching on the arm now the majority of people will go ow piss off nathan we go. yep no worries um but people with fatigue it's like pinching on the arm and after to 48 hours later they'll go ow that hurts so we need to be really careful of that and be one of the primary considerations as we prescribe our rehabilitation we can often see deconditioning stress and anxiety you know not necessarily as a cause but as perpetuating for the various reasons that i've talked about temperature so heat can be great for pain, bad for blood flow and orthostatic intolerance. Um, isolation, it's getting a lot better. I think when people first uh, had COVID, they were seen as either frontline workers and heroes or lazy because they got COVID. Whereas I think you know a lot of the population have got it now and just accept that it's just probably a part of life. Um, medication side effects, postural loading, so that your positioning for blood flow, like for example, prolonged periods of standing and sitting and sleep disturbance. So protective, these are really important. So multidisciplinary, multi-disciplinary support. Um, I'll say this: not none of us can do this alone, um, and especially reaching out to the, your medical team is really important to exclude those other conditions that we have before, because people can present in a lot of ways, but we may we can't pick up an iron deficiency by looking at them and a subjective report or assessment. So making sure that you link in with those doctors um, is really essential. And I think it's a great way to build relationships with a great team and get better outcomes with your patients. Um, family support, so educating them as well as professional and workplaces, their readiness to adapt and change, you know, whether accepting um, an early intervention and belief. No one chooses to be unwell. You know, there's only so much Netflix that you can watch. You know, people before are not waiting to become unwell so that they can't see their friends partake in life and work. So coming back to these, let's break them down. So let's go through fatigue, respiratory, and OI. Um, As I said, I can't go through everything um, today because there's not a lot of time and I'm trying to move quickly and give a good overview And I look at this is so that we can know when to, or what to assess, you know, when to seek help, when to manage ourselves. Because as I mentioned, this is not for everyone. um, And having those good links uh, and resources across allied health and medical uh, is so important. So fatigue. Um, Fatigue means different things in in different circles. So we can look at it as something that is force generation. So if we look at those of us that work with athletes, then they'll look at that repeatability to actually generate force. So whether that be to run, to throw, um, basically participate. Whereas we look at fatigue in a different way in invisible illnesses. So we look at it in a peripheral and central manner. So cognitive fatigue, as well as physical fatigue. uh, And something that's... leads to the people being limited at a later time now this means that they can't keep up the same activities you know we do see that with repeat vo2 testing in chronic fatigue syndrome that they if it's a day apart that they won't be able to get to the previous levels even though they have similar blood gases or respiratory gases so we can see that fatigue but we look at it in a different way not necessarily the ability to generate force but fatigue that limits the ability to participate in life. So it's an everyday phenomenon. phenomenon. Um, it's physical and mental, as I mentioned, and is often disease-associated. So it's not just with the long COVID or chronic fatigue syndrome. We see fatigue with um, cancer treatments. We see it with thyroid conditions, celiac disease, you know, some mental health. So it's not just um, ME, CFS or fatigue or long COVID, Um, but it's predominantly more in these populations, again, with post-exertional malaise or PEM. So post-COVID fatigue is generally one of the most dominant symptoms. We know that it's more dominant than Uh, respiratory, and then orthostatic intolerance and POTS, um, but we see a combination of symptoms. And when it is the most dominant symptom, then it needs to be, we need to have our treatment focused towards that and we'll go through pacing and some basics in a moment. But generally it's chronic and disabling to the point where it interrupts life. You can't do things. Now, I'm going to say tired is something we all experience. So that's just having a busy day. So right now I'm quite tired because my daughter has a gastro bug. Um, hence working from home in the pack background. Um, and so I've been up um, cleaning sheets, grabbing buckets, and and all the fun stuff as, as parents. And I'm lacking sleep, but I'm tired. Yeah, I'm not fatigued. A good sleep will refresh me and I'll feel fine. Fatigue is something along the lines of long-haul jet lag. You know, you, maybe you get to a destination and you, you feel well and you go, yep, let's, let's head out and see the sights. And then you sort of get to the point, you go, I, I've got to lie down, I can't. So fatigue is something that you can't push through. It's pathological and, you know, something that often does relate to that post-exertional malaise. So saying you're tired to someone with fatigue is like saying to someone who's depressed that, you know, my football team lost and I get sad. You know, it's actually really offensive. So even sort of meeting with them at that point and going, yeah, fatigue is different to tired, isn't it? You just can't push through. It's even like, you know, carrying an extra 30 kilos with you or getting off a Velcro couch All these type of things are going to help you you really engage with that client or patient in front of you. So pacing is something that I've talked about. Now, again, this means different things to different people. Um, Often pacing can be the pace of your exercise or your walk or moving. But pacing to us is not that. Pacing to us is about spreading our activities Throughout the day to limit that boom and bust. So, that's what I was mentioning before, where you do something and you pay for it later. So, what we ideally would want to do is to balance the different spoons that we have in the day. So, spoon theory, I haven't put it on this slide, is something that is a really great resource. Now, if you just Google spoon theory, you'll see lots of examples of this. And there's actually communities called spoonies. I've even seen someone have a beautiful tattoo of a big spoon down there. Now, what this means is that we all have a limited amount of energy. And so this person was sitting in a restaurant and they actually had lupus. And they gave this person a bunch of spoons and said, desymbolize your energy. And let's say, for example, there might be eight spoons. And they said, all right, what did you do today? I said, oh, I got up and had a shower. I said, all right, give me a spoon. I had breakfast, another spoon. You know, got my, I dropped my daughter off to school. That's another spoon. Then I had two case conferences. And that's like, we're down to six spoons. Now, this is only by 11 a.m. And then you go, well, you've got two spoons left. So how are you going to make lunch, dinner, pick up your children, um, get get home from work? Like you can't do all that. And it's like, oh, geez, I can't. So what we want to try and do is to stay with an energy envelope and spread those spoons out through the day. Because if you use too many in one day, you're going to start the next day with less. So it's another lovely analogy. And again, you can talk about this with your client. And it's something that we need to start with pacing because pacing allows us to be reliable and predictable. It allows us to establish a foundation because if we're not stable, then if we introduce some exercise or something along those lines and they feel worse, could be because of the exercise, but it may not be. It's because, maybe because they went took their children to school and then went to work and then felt terrible. So it helps us identify the triggers um, and it allows us to do more. A well-balanced diary allows us to plan pace and be more predictable. So this is just a really quick example. Um, This is a fictional example. And again, I have lots more resources on this. But we look at activity diaries. And if anyone likes these, wants a copy of these, please email me. I'm more than happy to send them to you. But you can look at basically the headlines of the day. And so you sleep, sleep, breakfast, travel, and this person's working. And obviously, with the colors, this looks towards how much energy someone expends. So green is low, yellow is medium, and red is high. And so looking at this, it's not how you feel, it's how much energy it takes. And that can be a really tricky subject for some people, especially with pain. And, but I'm in pain and it's harder to do. It's, well, it doesn't necessarily take more energy. So we often explain that. But in this particular circumstance, they have rated it in the correct way and it's how much energy it takes to do. Now we'll look at this and we go, yep, it's consistent. So let's blur our eyes and look at the color blocks. And we'll really see that the um down the well, the left-hand side or on the monday you see lots of the yellows and reds and with this that's their boom they feel okay so they're doing things because a lot of people go well now i've got this energy i've got to make up for lost time or you know i don't know when i'm going to feel worse later on so i'll keep going or you know i'll just do it so i can rest later whereas these sort of lend a bit of unpredictability to their health and random is something that we don't understand So looking at this, we can see boom and bust across the week. So really a day on, day off. We often see people do too much in the morning and have a lot of green in the afternoon, or it could be two days on and a day off. And sometimes it can be even delayed, you know, 12 to 48 hours. But mostly you're going to see something within 12 hours. Um, so what we want to try and do is to break this up so we want to have greens interspersed with the with the yellows and reds so that it evens it out so rather than having like maybe 10 hours on the monday and only five hours on the tuesday i'd rather have them about seven and a half hours on each day with those greens sprinkled in between because no one chooses to sleep in the middle of the day or generally they don't they'd rather be doing things that they enjoy as you can see over here on the thursday So that's very briefly pacing. And that's something that I could talk about for two hours by itself. Um, And there's lots of different examples and going through with our clients and patients. Exercise. Now that they're stable and often we'll get them to do an activity diary and work on pacing for at least a week or two before introducing exercise. Now exercise, especially in the fatigue world is a dirty word. And it's something that we need to ensure that it doesn't lead to people feeling worse. There is no point someone going and exercising and then not be able to make dinner or you know go to work or see their friends it needs to be something that is paced and sustainable so as far as fatigue goes it's really working towards someone's goals it's everything is patient-centered you know someone may want to return to basketball so we work towards that you know someone may just want to walk half hour a day with their mother's group great let's work towards that so generally we start with recumbent and build the cardio so more focused on just doing Um, We can monitor heart rates to make sure the intensity is not too high, but we encourage people to connect with their bodies. And then we look at building the intensity as tolerated. But generally you need to ensure that they are doing this for at least a week before progressing. And it's very important to check in with your clients and patients, not just at the end of the session, because they can look good when they're doing it. It's often later they feel worse. So it's great to send them, have them give me a quick call. You know, it's great for relationship building, maybe two minutes. Just want to check you, you when okay, or a text message, or at the very worst, ensure that the next session, you're going. how did you pull up? How have you been going? Now, strength uh, is important, but again, functional um it's really about the person's needs um generally seated if you can to save energy so they can do more activity all right so that's very briefly 10 percent of what we do with fatigue people cardiac considerations now i'm not going to focus upon amis heart attacks and you know pericarditis and those type of things you know where there's actually damage to the heart that's really following the cardiac rehab guidelines I'm going to briefly talk about orthostatic intolerance and POTS so orthostatic intolerance is more the umbrella term that encapsulate things like POTS which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and it's more the common name that you'll see because it sounds tangible POTS is a nice word but we can see newly mediated syncope and there's a large amount of uh, different terms but first of all, we want to educate what is going on in the body. We want to look at why they may be having this. So sometimes hypermobility mobility can be underlying, um, and it was in that case example before. So it's a crossover with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, we also can look at mast cell activation syndromes. And often these um, people that have not tolerated Pfizer vaccines tend to have, um, or the mRNA, tend to have... Um, yeah, MCAS is an underlying condition, and we're seeing and helping a lot of people recover from that. Um, and then it can be just central sensitization and too much load on the nervous system, or it can be significant deconditioning. But we educate them what is going on, the, how they regulate the, their bodies, why they have symptoms such as sensitivity to light as an adrenaline response and dilation of the pupils from as adrenaline is a vasoconstrictor, and so forth. They can experience anxiety because of the relation of that relation to that adrenaline and constriction. So insight allows people to de-escalate their stress and to then take control of the illness, which for us is so important. So from there, once we've educated them, and if they have a fatigue syndrome as well, we'll obviously we'll be doing the activity diary and pacing. If they don't have the fatigue syndrome, then we move into the exercise pretty quickly. So we start with recumbent exercise because it's horizontal and it's much easier to get blood around your body when you're horizontal. And then we want to build to upright activity and high intensity because we want to put stress on the body, but not so much stress that they have syncope and faint, but enough stress that the body adapts. Um, Very similar principles here with elite athletes. We want to push them as hard as we can go. uh, We just don't want to break them. And if we do break them, we go, okay, we know where your point is now. Let's sort of have that step back. Um lower limb strengthening is very important again, recumbent because we're aiming to build muscle in their muscle pumps, so especially carbs, quads, and glutes um, are really important because they're the sort of the second and third hearts of the body, so it's a lot of sort of strength work around there and you'll see a lot of them have myalgia in their lower limbs through venous pooling, and this is where compression can be helpful so um we sell two times you leggings through the um our store online store if you have ahc connection 15 you get 15 percent off so pass the word around little plug um but compression can be really good with venus return and really great um for prolonged periods of standing um sometimes the hotter weather but this is a hydrostatic pressure and recovery in pools can also be really great too um and you'll see people that often struggle with airplane travel uh because of it's a or decompressed atmosphere so by wearing compression they, they feel a lot better and a lot of these people will have symptoms in their life but it's never becoming a limiting factor it's just that with covid it becomes a lot louder um, and there's various theories around that now around diet so hydration salt um, and routine is very important so hydration is about a bigger volume if you have more volume in your arteries it's easy to pump the butt around and salt helps you retain fluid so actually a high salt diet, as long as they don't have high blood pressure is actually recommended in this population. So a significant amount. Um, routine around meals is important too. So small regular meals throughout the day and you want to make sure that they rest around those meals so that adequate blood flow to their gut to digest. But we have you know dietitians on our team that know this stuff inside out and will could talk all day on this as well. So again, briefly um, on the orthostatic intolerance side. So respiratory so we're seeing a lot of people with respiratory symptoms Um, now this can be shortness of breath persistent cough and there's a lot of different reasons behind that so on the more significant side we're seeing pulmonary fibrosis fibrosis and scarring of the lungs Um, but we're also seeing um, people that have poorer diffusion um, through their lungs so Spirometry does not pick this up, um, but the DLCO tests, so carbon monoxide tests, can pick up how much oxygen is being transferred across the lungs. And this could be for a few different reasons. It may be some um, pulmonary embolisms. um, It could be filling of your left ventricle because of blood pressure demands. um, It could be a few things. But shortness of breath is extremely distressing, but it does not necessarily mean that you're desaturating. Now, generally, if you're desaturating below ninety-four percent, it's sort of saying, "Hey, this is not quite right." And put your hand up, and definitely below ninety. Um, but if in doubt, always go back to your medical team. Um, airflow to the face is actually helps physiologically the person um, feel less breathless. So a fan can come on; it can be really great as they're exercising. Um, and breathing techniques to help regulate that breathing to take long, deep breaths to fill the whole lungs, because often people have short breaths because it is quite stressful. Um, Interval training, if they're not tolerating it um, due to breathlessness um, and recumbent exercises can be great to start with. And again, we want to bring them up and to try and get them um, as breathless and as possible in a comfortable way. So with mental health, we're seeing these. um, And and so pulmonary rehab can be a good one from the respiratories as well, as well as just, and, and again, it depends on the severity, but it can just doing general We rehab principles and breathlessness principles in clinic will be fine as well Um, mental health Uh, a lot of things come from this Um, mental health does not cause covid and you might be going yeah of course it doesn't but we need to repeat that again so mental health depression anxiety does not cause covid you know it's a virus but having these conditions can definitely perpetuate or put a load on the body that may mean that you're more likely to develop long covid So important to manage these and address these through the standard mechanisms. And again, from a multidisciplinary perspective. So early intervention, early intervention, the sooner we get these people, the better. And this is why I love doing these talks, because we get to reach thousands of people to say, hey, I know this. Let's let's get this investigated. Let's work as a team. Let's talk to your GP. Let's talk to your physio, your EP, you know, your dietitian, your psychologist, you know, your respiratory specialist, and make this happen. So the sooner we get onto these people, we know that they have better outcomes. And if we're looking at probably one to two percent of people having ongoing symptoms for life, and that comes from SARS-CoV-1. So the original or earlier outbreaks. So we are currently so SARS-CoV-2, we're still having people, you know, 15 years on that are having persistent symptoms. I love this slide, expectation versus reality. And look, maybe as business owners, as clinicians, this is really life. We want to make things linear. Take this medication, you'll feel better. Um, Do these exercises and you'll be fine in four weeks. But it's not that case. It's all over the place. And I think sort of if you judge it on this point where it's looking down, it's terrible, but it's also looking up, it's amazing. But we need to sort of look at the average of that line and to also make our clients and patients aware that it will not be perfect. So skills and focus. Now, as health professionals, one of the things I think we don't often allow enough time. So in clinic, we have hour and 20 minute assessments and 50 minute follow ups and we have 10 minutes just to have a little bit of a break ourselves because we believe in pacing and just to tie things up but we have to have this time and to sit down with them to assess and listen because if we don't ask then how can we help now how can i be or give patient-centered care so normalize and believe as i said before no one chooses to be unwell and you know talk about the physiology why this is happening and tell stories you know, often talk about central sensitization as when I was 16, drank too much Southern Comfort, and to this day, I can't look at it anymore. It makes me feel sick. You know, it creates stories and have fun, you know, be able to tell it through that. And you, everyone has their own. Um, manage and be supportive. You know, you need to review these people regularly, at least weekly for the first month, and then we go fortnightly usually for another two months you know we're teaching and educating them and sometimes we spread it out if they're doing great and some of them will respond really well and some of them will be a bit slower so we'll have more care but for most of these patients the real simple ones we might be seeing them for maybe four to eight weeks the average one will probably be six months and more the common ones that are ongoing we usually look at 12 months and probably 10 to 15 sessions over that time and in fact if we see people less than 10 times we don't believe that we can give them the adequate or appropriate care for themselves um our focus is on all these things here. Um, there is a lot that we do that we need to calm down. We don't know what the mechanisms are around these. We can learn so many lessons from MACFS and looking at going well. You know, it's this physiological marker. Now, we know that there are mitochondrial changes. We know that there are calcium channel changes that might be around lysis of your killer T-cells and immune system. But is that cause or effect? Is it random? Is it just in people? Is it chronic stress? And look, as an allied health professional, I'm not there to diagnose. That's not my role. I'm there to support them, to link them up with the appropriate people and rehabilitate them to to get to the best capacity that they can. Now, barriers. Barriers. Exercise intolerance. I don't like that word because it means that it's bad for them and that they can't do it. Yeah, you know, tolerance you know, in, in dietetic circles is more, you can't have it, it's damaging to the body. Whereas sensitivity means that, yeah, it's, you know, the body's a bit, has an inappropriate reaction for the stimuli, which is and in regards to central sensitization. So we need to tailor it to their needs. Um, and if people say it's dangerous, then I go, well, what about heart failure? You know, pre 90s you know they're told to rest in bed and don't move and they had a lifespan of two to three years you know with also with change in medication but the intervention of exercise their life expectancy goes to five to six years so basically doubled now would you tell someone with heart failure just go for a run exercise is good for you it's a good way to get sued so no and uh, you know so we need to remember that do no harm is what we do and find the right level be very aware of post-exertional malaise and you know how they're pulling up later and i think this needs to be the number one thing to look out for their overall allostatic load and how we can help them and their expectations i talked about time frames before now measurements of heart rate monitoring hrv heart rate variability became good and bad so i think they definitely have their place and i could talk for probably 20 minutes on that as well Um, but it's very much an individual thing to help guide them on their current path and that the tools they're using are helpful So measures, subjective, objective, are they helpful? I mean, it's great for insurance purposes and things like that. But to me, an outcome measure is, you know, if you've got back pain, can you pick up your child? Can you work? Can you see your friends? Can you go out? Um, So around the respiratory, you can see that there's some there and around POTS testing. So tilt tabling and possible blood pressure tests can be helpful in looking at diagnoses. So. Moving really quickly today, and I know that I've spoken exceptionally quickly, but the key points is that this is a set of symptoms. You know, we need to address and to look at people by their symptoms and how they present. Labels help us sort of figure out what direction and area they can go to and, again, what type of tools that we can deliver to them. Um, But it's a guide and we should be managing their symptoms and ideally getting rid of their symptoms. Is there post-exertional malaise? I know that I've harped on this, but I can't harp on it enough because that needs to be treated as number one. Because if they can't tolerate their ability to exercise at a certain level, then how can you do your pulmonary rehab or your cardiac rehab? Um, Exercise alone doesn't work. Otherwise, they're just lazy and deconditioned. And that's not the case. There's a disease, disease pathology underlying this. But exercise, like within, say, COPD, is not there to fix the lungs. It's there to help support people um, to get a better functionality in life and with some of these patients that's their goal and others it is to get back to a full health and life and a lot of people will improve over 12 to 24 months so symptoms if you've still got them at six months that's not the end it, it can get better and especially if you get good uh, good health care with experienced professionals in this area so our deep dives is all of these things I mean, this, and explains the physiology and that's a part of that first session um, and we look at delivering all these tools. So this is some of our team. Um, I work with a bunch of legends. Um, they are awesome to work with. We have 21 people on our team now. We have exercise physiologists and dietitians, and always looking for great people who are passionate in these areas, but we're also looking for OTs and psychs because we want to make sure that we can help people um, get what they need. But you can see that there's a lot to cover and it goes over a period of time but you know we really do get to change people's lives so that's a qr code to the COVID recovery initiative um this is something that we put out there as we saw the numbers before that we're having like 2400 cases a day of long COVID. that's conservative as well eight percent is a conservative number so can we treat all those people well we can do a hell of a good job as a team as health professionals yeah, but we need to ensure that we reach out. And so the COVID Recovery Initiative is designed to, to work along with health professionals to be able to give sessions and advice around pacing so that it gives you those tools and then you can work on what you're good at and connecting with those patients and helping them out. So yeah, have a look at that. And if you want to um, see what it's like, then even email me, which is there below, and I'll send you even the start of it to have a look at it. Right. I've talked a lot, haven't I, Jade?
0: I'm, I'm coming back to you now. I'm going to stop my yeah. screen share. Um, wow. I mean, look, you said that you spoke really fast and a lot, but that was jam-packed. It was, it was amazing. I mean, I don't, I don't often say when I get a speaker on that that was better than I could have imagined, but I think a lot of people watching at home um, are either a little bit in awe, like myself, of firstly how much we don't know and how much we need to invest time into particularly things that we don't know but in this space that is evolving and changing and moving and it's been around for two years now and it's not really an excuse not to be on top of this stuff and I think that's why it's really important to have industry leaders like yourself who are who are trailblazing in helping people in this area I mean you're what you're doing is nothing short of pretty incredible and life-changing for these people's lives and having something like this for COVID recovery initiative is so useful for not only patients, but for us, when you get to a stage where you've got somebody sitting there in front of you. And I've, I've got a whole lot of notes. that I'd love to touch on a couple of things before we finish up, but in particular, I think some, some great things to recap on is obviously those four things that um, predisposing, precipitating, pre- perpetuating, I got that right. And yep. And protective but for me and i think this is a really interesting point when it comes to that um, allostatic load and and being conscious of that sort of two days later and i know you spoke about that in an exercise strength load based capacity my question to you and you might not even be able to answer it but my my husband for example he tested positive back in january and Getting back into fitness and everything for him, he certainly doesn't have long COVID. But his responses to things are delayed, and particularly now he, he goes and sees an osteopath, not myself, surprise, surprise. I don't, don't really treat my family. But he goes and sees an osteopath, and what he's finding more lately, and he can't really put his finger on it, it's a bit of a throwaway line. I'm worse since I had COVID. He is sorer for longer after manual therapy. And is that something I mean, obviously, you do a lot of referrals, you refer off to physio, osteo, Mm -hmm. internally, you talk about the importance of this team. Is this something that you've heard where people normally we have this script where we treat somebody with manual therapy, we do some soft tissue massage, and we say, look, you're going to be sore for about 24 hours following a treatment? is this something with people with COVID that we could be extending? You're going to be sore for 48 hours and beyond because he most certainly is. And I'd love to hear from you whether this is something that's common and we need to be addressing in our case history and in our post, uh, post-treatment care.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think there's, like the phenotypes, there's all different types of people that are going to present to us. And I think the key question to ask, is it inappropriate? And if you look at this and with your husband and going, well, usually you might be sore for say 24 hours, but it's now 48 hours. Well, that's inappropriate for him. Yeah. So I'd be looking and saying, yeah, that needs to, we need to delve a little bit deeper. Now, I guess he's a very busy person and that he's always on the go. I think it probably runs in the family. Um, And those are the people that are predisposed towards developing these because they don't have that appropriate rest. And I, and I suppose a little bit of a, a like something that I think, As a society, we don't actually value rest anywhere near as much as we should and good quality rest. I think we give it a lot of lip service, but that's when our body really recovers and rests and that balance. And running a practice, there's always something to do with these patient populations. There's always something to learn and do. So I think like with cases like this, and when someone has a residual symptom, it's really worth going through and looking and going. So, okay, how do you rest? Like, and to focus upon that because that's the core of pacing and it gives the the body time to settle down. And sometimes I use the analogy of a cut. If you have a cut and you're under stress, so I was in Nepal and hiking at high altitude and I had a, just a scratch on my arm and it took three weeks to heal. Now, at normal altitude, that would take five days. Mm-hmm. But because of that chronic stress on the body, it takes longer to heal. Or if we keep picking at it by we keep pushing through and not resting or recovering, we're more likely to have these symptoms. So when people are having these little residual symptoms, often i go, so have you had a holiday? Uh, Have you had really given yourself that time to let the body heal?
0: Mm. And I I think that ties really well into my next question and, and comment is long COVID doesn't have to be straight away. It's not that, and I think that I had that, I was guilty of that misconception is that you sort of get COVID and some people sort of just never recover Is it that some people get COVID and the long COVID is starting to come out six months, 12 months later and so that there are people that kind of get outside that window and they think they're in the clear, but in actual fact it can present at a later date? Is there something to show for that? Yeah, it
1: can. So most, there'll be people that get those long COVID symptoms quite early, like you're saying, but Mm -hmm. it's pretty common even at three, four weeks and six weeks. And it's because people are feeling better, like the symptom load is coming down, Mm -hmm. but they're ramping up their life too quickly. And so there might be pressures to get back to work. You know, you're not testing positive. Come on. Yeah, you're over it. And so I think that by, you know, as the symptoms go, we don't wait till they get to the bottom. And if we don't don't quite get to the bottom and then we put that load on the body, whether it be physical or cognitive or emotional, even Mm. environmental, then I think that's what predisposes their body just to to develop that long COVID. And that can happen probably up to 12 weeks later. Um, And I mean, there's other reasons why we can develop these conditions or similar conditions too.
0: Mm. And I think it is because of some of these uncertainties. As a health professional, we need to be able to preempt Those conversations and one of the things that we're going to be doing in private practice, and it's particularly because of my husband's experience is, you know, I've been seeing you on and off and supporting you in your condition for the last two or three years, but now post COVID, the way that I treat you and the way that you respond might actually change. So you just need to keep in mind that if you are sore off for longer post-treatment, then you need to actually be aware of that and communicate that. But what I'll probably do is give you a call in two days to make sure. So we'll be kind of adding some, we always do, uh, post-treatment calls and cancellation list calls and those sorts of things anyway but I think we're going to be introducing a post-positive case COVID script where we're actually giving them a call after treatment and checking in on them for these reasons um, and the other thing that I wrote down there's a couple more things I loved your pain versus energy concept and I know it's not new and it's a great it was a great reminder for me that Pain doesn't always mean energy. A lot of people, when it comes to, and I hate to use the word excuse, but when they're excusing their, uh, I guess, that lack of drive to actually undergo and start that process of returning to physical exercise, that often pain, you know, is obviously their front of mind and often in those cases. But just that simple phrase that pain doesn't equal energy I just, I really love that. So I wrote that down. I just kind of wanted to remind, I guess, a couple of the people watching that, that sometimes we can use that. I love that Spoonies concept. I wasn't familiar with that. So you taught me already so many things that I've sort of written down. And just that understanding, I mean, I, I teach empathy in a clinical setting, as you know, in my leadership yes. development courses and the language around that. And often we can't physically put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, which is, I guess, what the nature of empathy is. But using the terminology and language and having an understanding of long COVID by listening to people like yourself, you can somewhat empathise with their situation and and use those analogies and just understanding that boom and bust concept as well. And even just saying that, you know, you might be feeling well now. It's almost almost like a manic type flow where, yes, you're feeling really good, but just remember that allostatic load. So that was a really, really good... Takeaway for me. One of the questions that I have obviously, you see a lot of people in this space. This is why I'm directing my questions to you. So please tell me if you're not the right person to answer them. But um, I'm really interested in work cover and where work cover is coming in in this space and what your experience has been, where particularly maybe people might have been exposed to COVID in the workplace. So therefore, they've caught COVID at work and therefore long COVID as a result of that becomes a pretty daunting work cover experience, not only for the employee, but also for the employer, knowing how to manage them with, um, I guess, you know, reduced hours or a change in role. When, we, when the uncertainty is there, I think a lot of people panic. What are you seeing with that, with work cover pages? Is it being well received by employees? Is it being approved by insurance companies?
1: We are seeing a few, um, especially through, like, say, nursing and allied health populations or work within public hospitals uh, and working on those wards. So you you do need to sort of prove that it was caught at work. Um, And look, I think that it's a challenging area because there's not a set evidence base yet. So being in this new area, and I had a call for a doctor saying, look, we've got the COVID recovery initiative, and they can see me for these sessions, but if they do this, it's going to be a lot quicker. And they go, well... If you got an evidence-based um, research randomized control trial on that? And I went, no, <laughs> and I don't, but there's heaps of evidence it comes from. Yeah. So I think we're going to be faced a little bit with that challenge. Um, but I think as far as these patients, I often say it's like coming back from an ACL. Like this is a 12 month rehab and you know, you've got to start with just bending, not weight bearing, then weight bearing, then hopping, then moving and twisting, running. And, the great thing in this particular circumstance is that if you overdo it, you're not going to snap your ACL again and go right back to the beginning. But we need to think about that. We just need to take it in those steps and and gradually return and then look at the appropriate duties for that individual on a, on a physical as well as cognitive side um, and then gradually build them back into it so they can tolerate it. So it does take time. But if we do it in the right way, then we'll get these people back to work. And I think generally when you explain it, employers are pretty good. They just want to see people back and, and helping out. Um, So, yeah, we haven't had too many troubles from employers.
0: Yeah, and I think it is a really interesting point around that communication and language. People aren't as afraid when they're educated and feel supported and managed. I'm sure you would would agree with that in your experience. But one of the things that you said is you clearly mapped out a management and support process anywhere from a minimum of eight weeks and sort of, as you said, less than 10 consultations is not going to get a relevant outcome that you're after right up to that 12-month period and outline you know you get a lot of these people sort of you know bar humbug when it comes to um, this rebooking and this unethical rebooking and all of those sorts of things but i think in these instances the, the it's not necessarily a maintenance treatment for no reason but the management of this needs to be clearly articulated from the very beginning that this is not a quick fix and i think that was just really something important that I wanted to flag because if these people think they're going to get better in six weeks and we know that that's not the case, even just from your experiences alone, that language in communicating, how do you tell somebody really that financially you might be outlaying for this for twelve months?
1: Look, I suppose this comes a little bit back to some marketing from ours, and it's like a four step process. so you've got um, product price, promise and impact in sort of a, a stepped way, and like. This is not unethical. Like we only help, we're here to help people and we pride ourselves on getting people better because it's the best business decision you can make is to have success stories and and people doing well. And so we discharge people and educate them. And most of the time we don't ever see them again because they go lovely off into the sunset. But we, if you pitch at one of these points, so as I said, product, price, promise and impact, everyone always goes back to the previous step. So we tend to really pretty much pitch at the impact so we, so we get to ask you about what your challenges are. And mm-hmm. say so you go, well, maybe, you know, you're, you're really sore after your treatment and that doesn't allow you to get back into sport and to do what you need to. So we know if we do this and it's going to take this many sessions and we're going to cover this, that we're going to get you to that point. So then you're then reflecting on the promise. And when you do that, people will actually, you know, work there. Now, there's some people that can't have the, the, the money and we do work around that That is a very real reason. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we should devalue ourselves as health clinicians. I, I think that if you go to a financial advisor or your accountant, what's their alley rate? Mm-hmm. And what's a health professional's alley rate? So I think we really need to talk about the impact that we have on individuals and truly how we change their lives. Because if you can tell them that you're going to be able to work, have fun and see your friends, what's that worth to you? yeah it's hard to put a number on it
0: oh, look I, I couldn't agree with you more and I, I speak to a lot of that in my good to great in private practice course in that you you know you need to be able to deliver the best management plan for the best outcome without having to make financial you know you can obviously empathize with them and, and communicate and work with them but you need to be able to articulate what is going to get them from a to b in the most effective efficient time so um look gosh that went so fast I think more than anything it sort of outlined a lot of the stuff that I don't know and I know that there's so much more detail so uh, I'm I, I love that you've kind of put it into those succinct points and enough to kind of pigeonhole the fact that we really do need to be investigating more in this space and learning more about this because exactly as we said at the beginning, this isn't going away. So things like your COVID recovery initiative is really, really important. Can you just let us know again? So how do we find that on, is it on your website?
1: Yeah. So you can go to the activehealthclinic.com.au or covidrecoveryinitiative.com or .com.au and go into there and follow the links. It's um, $145, which is not much for this care because we want to reach thousands and thousands of people yeah um so you'll have to put up with a lot of myself and raya who's one of my amazing team as well as a dietitian luke but it's about 80 videos over 28 days and it takes people through the course of pacing and a lot of these tools okay Um,
0: and to confirm that is for patient self-guided education or would you recommend that practitioners do it just to actually help build that empathy uh dialogue
1: so often we encourage practitioners to do it alongside their patients um, to actually sort of understand and talk about it. Yep. But we try and take out the, the heavy education and leave the clinicians with the, okay, great, let's work on this and that strategy and, and fine tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and patients can do it alone. But I think is in regards to sort of that clinical education, I'd say watch this space. I'm, going to be put, I'm putting, currently putting together a one and two day workshop on this. Yep. Um, and that will be in the next quarter of this year.
0: Yep, wonderful. And just care plans, how many consultations, just so if we are cross-referring with an exercise physiologist, yeah. how many sessions are you getting on a care plan at the moment?
1: Yeah, so it falls under the CDM. Um, yep. So we have to have to share them with osteos oh, and, no. and, and things. So there's a total of five per calendar year, okay. uh, which is a challenge. Yeah. But again, we make the most of it and I go back to saying, well, how do we work together better to make those decisions? And people commit.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, your knowledge, putting all this together and talking to us. It's been great introducing you to the GrowthRx community and I'm sure that we're going to see your face again and many, many more resources in this space to come. So thank you for everything you do for the industry and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye. See you later. Bye.